Well, amen. It's good to be with you this morning. We're going to be continuing our series in the book of Mark, the series Amazed by Jesus. And so if you would turn there with me this morning, uh, look forward to uh, opening the word together today. Um, as you turn there, question for you, have you ever had a great opportunity that you failed to take advantage of? I know in my life I have many times, and if we're all honest, I think we've all been there before. Well, there's a, a game tonight. I, I don't know if you guys have heard anything about it, but there's supposedly a big game that's going to be played tonight. And uh, in this big game, there's going to be a great opportunity that's going to be given to each team. And ultimately, one team is going to take advantage of that opportunity and become world champions. The other team is going to miserably fail with that opportunity, and they're probably going to regret it for the rest of their life. And uh, this is the first time actually in about 19 years that my favorite team, the St. Louis Rams, are going to be in the Super Bowl. And actually, they, let me correct that. They were the St. Louis Rams two years ago. That's why I liked them so much because I grew up in Missouri, but now they're the L.A. Rams. And so I can't really just switch teams that fast. So I still, they're still my favorite team. But, uh, but, you know, we saw this play out about opportunities last week. We had two of the greatest championship games probably in history of the NFL. Both of them went into overtime. One, one game was... Uh, the big story afterward was the blown call. There was an official who had a great opportunity to officiate in a great game, and he blew the call. And fortunately for me, my team benefited from that, and so they're in the Super Bowl. And uh, on the other side of the, the uh, conference, the AFC Championship, we had the Chiefs and the, the Patriots, and uh, there was about a minute 30 left on the clock, right? The Chiefs were up by 28, uh, 28 to 24. The great Tom Brady was driving down the field, and what happens? The pass gets tipped. One of the Chiefs uh, players catches the ball, intercepts the pass, and it looks like finally Tom Brady's going to go down. The Chiefs, which is my second favorite team, by the way, and the Rams are going to be in the Super Bowl. But there was a flag on the field, and the defensive end for the Kansas City Chiefs blew it. He was lined up in the neutral zone. The, call, the play got called back. The Patriots went on to score. The game ultimately went into overtime. And unfortunately, the Patriots now are going to be in the Super Bowl instead of the Chiefs. And so we see both sides, there's been great opportunities. And this time of year with sports, we see that all the time. Well, you're probably wondering where I'm going with this. I promise it applies to the message this morning. Uh, because a great opportunity is given to the people at Nazareth in, in Mark chapter 6. And we're going to see this incredible opportunity that's given to them. So let's look at uh, Mark chapter 6, starting with verses 1 through 6 this morning. So what it says, it says, Jesus went out from there and came into his hometown, and his disciples followed him. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and the many listeners were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom given to him? And such miracles as these performed by his hands. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. And he could do no miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he wondered at their unbelief, and he was going around the villages teaching. Let's pray together this morning. Dear God, we thank you so much for your word, Lord. We thank you for the great opportunity that we're going to hear about this morning, Lord. I pray that you would forgive me of my sins, Lord. I'm a sinner. 
saved only by your grace, Lord, and that you would use me, Lord, make me a clean vessel to deliver your word to your people this morning, God. Lord, I pray that all across this room that we would be open to hear whatever it is that you want to teach us, and we just ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so as we look back at these first six verses, when we look at the first verse there, we see a great opportunity is given to the people of Nazareth. The opportunity they have is they have a great opportunity to encounter God in the flesh. I mean, can you imagine what kind of opportunity this is? Can you imagine if, you know, there's posters put out and we found out that Jesus Christ was going to be here in Collierville today in the flesh? I mean, that would be incredible. It would be the greatest opportunity that we've ever had to be able to see Jesus Christ face to face in the flesh. And someday, praise God, those of us that follow him will see him face to face. But how amazing would that be? They had an opportunity to encounter God, but not only that, they have an opportunity for a second chance. We know about a a year earlier, according to Luke chapter 4, verse 29, a year earlier, Jesus came to Nazareth. And they were so angry and they were so offended at Jesus, people from his hometown, that they ran him out of the city and tried to run him off or throw him off a cliff. And so the fact that Jesus would give them a second chance after that encounter about a year earlier shows a lot about his compassion. The fact that he would be so compassionate to go back and put himself at risk just so that some could receive, some could follow him, some could have another chance to see the Savior and to know the Savior. But not only that, can you imagine the courage that it would have taken to know that and go back somewhere where that had happened previously? Not only for Jesus but also for his disciples. There's a lot of times in scripture where the disciples mess up, right? They fail, they, they blow it. But in this particular story, we're gonna look at it here in a little bit later, is this is a great example uh, that they've given us in this story. And the courage that they had to go back was unbelievable. So we see, unfortunately, the people were presented with a great opportunity, but what happens? We see that they had a worldly focus instead of a godly focus. They begin to question his training. You know, it sounds like it's going well at first. It talks about, he began to teach in the synagogue, says that they were astonished at what he was saying. And so it kind of seems like it's starting out well. But then look at how it turns. They begin to ask questions. They begin to question his training. They begin to point out that he doesn't have the proper credentials. After all, I mean, Jesus is just a hometown boy. He didn't have the proper training from a rabbi. He didn't go through the process the way that the world says that he's supposed to do. And so they begin to try to put him into the world's box, the world's standards, and try to fit him into this box and say, well, he 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 didn't do this or didn't do that or he doesn't have these credentials. And so therefore, they begin to question his training. But not only do they question his training, they also begin to question his qualifications. Look at verse 3. They point out that he's just a carpenter. He's just a lowly carpenter. They resent the fact that a hometown boy had somehow acquired so much wisdom and power. We see that they're impressed with the miracles they've heard he's done. That's probably how he got a chance to speak in the synagogue in the first place, because about 20 miles away was Capernaum, where he had just come from. And he had been doing all of these miracles, and the word had spread of his power. And they were astonished by what he was saying. But yet, they can't get over that he's a lowly carpenter from their hometown. They're so focused on the worldly parameters that they can't focus on who he really is. He doesn't fit in into their noble image that the Messiah was supposed to be. Many of the people believe that the Messiah would be this great military leader or this great king that would come and overthrow the Roman Empire. 
and to free all of the people politically. So they didn't, he didn't fit into their box, not, not only just for a prophet, but as the Messiah as well. He was just a humble carpenter. But not only was he just a humble carpenter, but he was Mary's son. We know that Joseph was probably, Joseph, the father of Jesus, was probably deceased at this time. We know that for two reasons. Number one, they don't mention him at all. But number two, for Jesus to claim that he was the Messiah, his father had to have already passed. Because he didn't claim to be the heir apparent of the Messiah or the heir apparent king of the Jews. He claimed to be the Messiah, the king of the Jews. And for him to be able to be that person, his father will have, had to have already passed away. And so, but I don't think that's why they call it Mary's son. We know that, you know, whenever someone passed back at that time, the oldest son was kind of responsible for the family at that point. So I think some of them could have been really disappointed in thinking that he was abandoning his duties as the oldest son by going away and having his ministry outside of Nazareth. But I think the main thing by calling him Mary's son was an insult because we know back in that day that that men were called by the name, they were called the son of their father, not the son of their mother. And so the fact that he was called the son of Mary was probably an insult, and it was a reference to his supposed illegitimate birth. I mean, have you ever thought about that, about Jesus, that he actually had to grow up in a town where everyone thought that his dad, Joseph, wasn't really his dad? After all, most of them didn't believe in the virgin birth, right? They weren't believers at this point, as we see in the passage. And so they probably imagined that his dad was somebody else, maybe a Roman soldier, maybe uh, some other man in the town, and he was born illegitimately. Could you imagine what he had to deal with growing up hearing that his whole life? And when he went back, for whatever reason, whether it was because he was a lowly carpenter or whether it was because he wasn't, quote, refilling his responsibilities as the oldest son, or maybe because they believe he was born illegitimately, for whatever reason, we see in the passage that they took offense at him. And they didn't take offense at his words or what he did, like the Pharisees and the scribes do in a lot of the passages that we've already been through in Mark over the previous weeks. But they take offense at who he was, who they saw him through a worldly perspective to be. That's what they were offended by. And what's so sad about this is that their unbelief robbed them of blessing. And you think about being offended. Being offended is really the opposite of belief. It's the complete opposite of belief. And so not only did they not believe in Jesus, but they were actually angry and offended by him once again a second time. You know, it's a lot like that in our world today in the sense that, you know, we, we today want a hero savior, a grand savior. I mean, if you don't believe me, look at Hollywood. Look at all the movies that are produced and almost... Probably over half of the movies you see now, there's a hero in every story, right? Uh, think about all of the Marvel and, you know, all those kinds of movies. Uh, you got the Avengers, you got the Justice League, all these movies that have come out. Aquaman just came out recently, and it's one of the higher grossing movies they've had in a while. Everybody's hungry for that hero in the story, right? In our culture today, we want that hero savior. But as God does many times, he kind of flips it on his head, doesn't he? And God offers a humble Savior. The people in his hometown are probably a, a kind of a sample of the whole Jewish nation. They were looking for this grand hero Savior, but yet God offered a humble one. 
You know what the sad part is? The very person that they were waiting for, the very person that many of them are still waiting for, was there and they missed him. They're rejecting the very person that they're waiting for because they can't see the spiritual side. They're focused too much on the worldly standards. Their physical knowledge of Jesus prevented them from having a spiritual knowledge of him. You know, and I think it's easy for us to judge and say, man, they really blew it. Like, what was wrong with these people? How could they not see Jesus? But what about us today? How many times in our lives today do we get so focused on the things of the world, we get so focused on what we want to do and what we think is going to make us happy or what the culture is telling us that we need or that we should want, we get so focused on those things How many times do we miss Jesus? Those of us that are believers sometimes will get too caught up in other things and we miss Jesus. But even those that don't know Christ many times don't find him because they're too caught up in the things of the world. What about us today? Is our focus so worldly at times that we miss Jesus? Unfortunately, their worldly focus produced failure at at Nazareth. The people of Nazareth failed to take advantage of their great opportunity. First, they failed to honor Jesus as Lord. Look at verse 4. It talks about how prophet is without honor, except for, is not without honor, except in his own hometown. Jesus was repeating a, a well-known proverb of the time. He was clearly identifying himself with the Old Testament prophets who were often ridiculed, not listened to, and even put to death for their faith. So they failed to honor him as Lord, but they also failed to experience God's power. We see in verse 5 that he could do no miracles there because they did not believe, right? And so we see that most of the time, if not all the time in the Bible, miracles occur when there's a human need and there's faith. And when there's no faith, there's often no miracles. And we know that God and his son can do anything, It's not that he wasn't able to, but he chose to limit himself according to human response. The concept that we're not robots, that God doesn't force us to love him. He doesn't force us to believe in him, but we must choose. And because of their choice, they failed to experience God's power. We see again God's compassion. When he still heals a few people that do believe, and maybe he heals some people that are so sick that they don't have an opinion on the matter because they maybe don't even know what's going on because they're so sick. That could be a possibility. But we know that he did heal some because of their belief and because of his compassion. But for the most part, those who chose not to believe failed to experience his power. And so we see they failed to honor Jesus. They failed to experience his power. But they also failed to believe in Jesus as Lord. In verse 6, Jesus says that he marvels or he wonders at their unbelief. And he went on and began to teach in other villages. I think this is interesting because there's no partiality with God. The passage doesn't say that Jesus, because they were his former classmates in elementary school, or because they were his family members, or because they were his friends, or because it was his mother or father or cousin or whoever it was, that he chose to give them a pass. And, you know, they can go ahead and come into the kingdom even though they don't believe yet. That's not what happened. The Bible says that he went to other people who would listen, who would hear. And ultimately, those who choose Jesus Christ as Lord and they see him for who he is, those are the people that will ultimately be his family and welcomed into his kingdom 
and into the family of God. You know, the people of Nazareth were so familiar with Jesus that they failed to enjoy the blessings of knowing him. You know, I wonder if that's something that we struggle with in our, I know it is something we struggle with in our world, in our culture, in our country. So many of us are so familiar with Jesus. We grow up in Christianity. We grow up going to church. We grow up having Christian parents or family or friends. But yet so many times we miss what it's really all about. So many times, there's so many people out there that live this nominal Christian life that have truly never bent the knee and followed Jesus Christ as Lord. And they're so familiar with him and the stories about him that they think they're comfortable. They think they're safe, but yet all at the same time, they're missing him. Is that you today? Are you one that would say, I've never fully known Jesus Christ? You can find him today. But the people fail to believe in Jesus as Lord You know, in this passage, we see a great example of what not to do, how not to live. And the people of Nazareth give us a negative example that we don't want to follow. But in the next few verses, we see the disciples show us the right example. The disciples show us that the, right, the right focus. And so let's look at Mark chapter 6, 7 through 13. It says, And then he summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over unclean spirits. And he instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey except a mere staff, no bread, no bag, no food, I'm sorry, no money in their belt, but to wear sandals. And he added, Do not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave town. Any place that does not receive you or listen to you as you go out from there, shake the dust off the soles of your feet for a testimony against them. They went out and preached that men should repent, and they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. So we see here in, in chapter 6, starting with verse 7, we see a change, right? We see the negative example, and now we see the positive example of the disciples. We see that godly focus reveals our purpose. The disciples' godly focus resulted in them taking advantage of their great opportunity that they were given to fulfill their purpose. So you might ask, what is our purpose? Well, our purpose, you see, through all throughout Scripture, is that we were created to glorify God. Our purpose in life is, as believers in Christ is to glorify God. Those that are not believers in Christ, their purpose is to glorify God. They just haven't figured it out yet or haven't received Jesus Christ as Savior yet. But that's our purpose. And our purpose is only achieved through our mission. So what's our mission? Our mission is to follow Jesus as Lord. And when we follow Jesus as Lord, we automatically glorify God with our lives. And so we see here in verse 7 that Jesus sent them out in pairs. I think there's two reasons he probably sent them out in pairs. The first one would be a legal reason. We know in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 6, that the law demanded two witnesses for any testimony. So their testimony would be more valid even legally by having them go out in twos. But we also know that obviously they were sending twos for accountability, for encouragement to one another. And that's a great principle for us that we shouldn't go alone. We should go together. Right? God wants us to serve him together and fulfill our mission together. 
But we also see that Jesus gives them kingdom authority. We can't miss this this morning. This is a pretty cool thing. You know, that Jesus gives them the authority, his authority and power to cast out demons. We don't go on our own authority. We don't go on our own power. That's the worst thing that we can do. But we go into the authority and the power of Jesus Christ. I mean, we think about commissioning teams. It's a pretty cool way to think about it. We have teams that we commission in the summer. We have teams that we commission other times of the year. Mission teams that go out and and serve the Lord, right? I mean, how cool would it be from now on to begin to think we're commissioning this team to be sent out to attack Satan's kingdom. To go out in the power and the authority in the name of Jesus and to attack Satan's kingdom. Because that's ultimately what we're doing when we go out in the authority of Jesus Christ. We need more people in our church. We need more more people in our town. We need more people in our country who are willing to go out in the power and authority of Jesus to attack Satan's kingdom. And it might look like doing that here at home. It might look like doing it at your job every day, taking the gospel and the love of Jesus Christ to those around you. It might be in your neighborhood. It might be to your family and friends. Or it might be going all the way across the world on a mission trip with somebody like a pastor, Luis Martinez. And going and serving the Lord on mission. God calls us all who are able to do all of it. To fulfill our mission in all those ways. We see also that our mission produces faith in God's provision. In verse 8, he basically tells them, take just a couple things, but pretty much don't take anything that you don't need. And I want you to take the bare minimum so that you can trust in me and have faith in my provision. Not only my provision that I can provide just, you know, however I want to, God can provide however he wants to, but the provision that he's going to provide through other people as well. And we see that, we see that our mission produces faith in God's provision. Uh, There's a part about the two tunics, and I've kind of wondered what that was all about. Well, obviously, the two tunics were used for, one was to wear, the other one, a lot of times they could wear both, or they could use one for a blanket at night to keep warm. And so he's basically saying, rely on other people and me to work through those other people. You don't need to take anything that you don't absolutely need. The bare minimum, rely on me, trust in me, is what he's saying here. So we see that as he, they produce faith in God's, uh, mission produces faith in God's provision, it also produces faith in other believers. Look at verse 10. He said to them, wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave town. And this is about how we treat people who are hospitable to us. So staying in one place prevented the disciples from moving on if they later found better accommodations. So it's about being content with their situation, being content with their circumstances. And it would also keep them from bringing offense to the message. I mean, if you're trying to share Jesus with somebody and you're staying at their house and then somebody has a little bit better house, invites you to stay with them and you move places halfway through, that's probably going to be pretty offensive to the person you're trying to, to, to talk with whether it's a believer or a non-believer. So the idea was how, to, was how to treat people that are hospitable to you. But what's so incredible about this is that it's producing faith in other believers because along the way, it's not our mission, it's God's mission that we're a part of. And he has other people that he wants to be a part of the mission as well. And so along the way, God's gonna bring people alongside of us to partner with us, to help us. Just as our church has partnered with Pastor Luis. And what's 
incredible about that is the more people that be a, are, become a part of the mission, the more people that are involved in the mission, the more people's in, uh, believers that will have their faith increased, that will have their faith amplified because they see God work and they're able to be a part of the mission that he wants us to be on. And so we see some great mission principles here. That we must not be fussy about food or accommodation. But we must realize that the mission is a matter of life and death to the hearers. The spread of the gospel has priority over our personal likes and dislikes. Basic mission principles have relevance for all times. Even in this first sending out of the disciples. Even in this short-term mission trip the disciples go on. You know, when I was in seminary, uh, when I was getting ready to go to seminary after college, I began to look around and pray about where God would have me to go. And I wanted to go to the seminary here in Memphis. It was closer to home. I was, my, my family was in Missouri at that time, still are. But uh, it was close to home. I wanted to go there. And I heard about this seminary in Texas called Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth. And I thought, you know what? I need to go down there. I've heard so many good things about it. I need to go down there just to make sure I'm not supposed to go there. Let's make sure I'm not missing out on something I'm supposed to do. So I go down there and I visit and really hoping that God will say, you know, you need to go closer to home. You need to go to the one in Memphis because it's a great school too. And while I was there, God began to tell me very clearly that this is where I want you. I just had this peace. I just knew that's what God wanted me to do. And so I chose to go down. And, and what was interesting about it, it was probably the greatest faith uh, experience that I'd had in my life up to that point because I had to go down with no job, no place to live, no roommate. I just had to go. The seminary wouldn't give me a place to live until I met somebody that I could have a roommate with so that, you know, we could share the rent and all that. At that point, I couldn't afford to pay the rent by myself. And so um, I just went and I knew that, okay, I've got to trust the Lord. If I feel like he wants me to go, I've got to trust him. And I went and it was one of the most incredible experiences in my life. It increased my faith. It got me out of my comfort zone. And what happened was within the first week that I was there, I knew two people down there. So one of the guys I knew, uh, he had a house and he was going to be on vacation for a week. So he said, hey, you can sleep on my couch for a week until we get back. Maybe you can find a place to live. And, and so I get down there within a couple of days. I meet, meet this guy at the same church that I'm at on that first Sunday. Uh, he's also looking for a roommate. So I find a roommate. I find a place to live permanently. Uh, then God opens the door for me to have not just one job, but two jobs. I had a chance to serve as a, uh, as a youth pastor down there at a church. And then I also had a chance to do some valet parking at a restaurant in downtown Fort Worth just to make some money until, so I could pay for school and have a place to live and all that. And God just provided everything I needed. And, you know, when you, we step out in faith, so many times God is always going to come through and he's always going to increase our faith through that experience. And that's really a lot like a mission trip. One of the reasons I'm so passionate about getting our people in this church on mission trips, on short-term mission trips, is because when you're willing to go and you're willing to get out of your comfort zone, God will take you into the faith zone. And God will do things in your life because you're at a place of vulnerability. You're at a place where you do have to fully rely on God. He will do things in your life that you would never experience in your comfort zone. Because he increases your faith through these opportunities. If you've never been on a mission trip, I encourage you. There's still time to get going for this year's mission trips, to get included in the trips for the summer and some that we're going to have in the fall. And you have an incredible opportunity to grow your faith by going on a short-term mission trip. Part of the process on going on a short-term mission trip is trusting the Lord in faith that he's going to provide. 
Even when you don't know where the money's going to come from, even, don't, even though you don't know where you're going to find the time, even though you're nervous about how that might play out, God will bless you for serving him. So we see that our mission produces faith in other believers, but we also see that our mission produces faith in unbelievers. Let me explain. Obviously, we know it, the mission produces faith in unbelievers because we're sharing the message of repentance and we're sharing the gospel. But it also, in, in a different way here in this, in this passage in verse 11, look at what it says. It says, Any place that does not receive you or listen to you, as you go out from there, shake the dust off the soles of your feet for a testimony against them. So we see the instructions in the previous verse to those who are hospitable, who are friends of the message or friends of the gospel. But then we see instructions for those that are hostile, for those that are enemies of the gospel. And what are the instructions? The instructions are ultimately to condemn the unbelieving people in the unbelieving cities. Let me explain. There's some background here. The Jews at that time, whenever they were coming back to the Holy Land from a Gentile land, they would shake the dust off their feet and off of their clothes because they believed that Gentile dust or Gentile lands would defile the Holy Land, the land of the Jews. And so they would do this as a way of basically saying, we are part of God's kingdom, and these Gentiles are not part of God's kingdom. But in this particular story, something very unique happens. Jesus tells the Jews, his disciples, to do this to other Jews, which is very interesting, because what he's ultimately saying is that this is a symbolic action served as a further message to the unrepentant to reconsider their actions. So when these Jews would see other Jews do this to them, they'd be like, wait a second, I thought we only did this to people that were in Gentile lands. This was something we did against the Gentiles. So this is another Jew doing this to me as a fellow Jew. So he's basically saying, by rejecting this message, I am outside of God's fold, of God's family. And it made them really think, really rethink the rejection of the message of repentance. So the idea was to help them rethink and ultimately lead unbelievers to repentance and lead them to reflect and to reconsider their their choice. But what it also did is those that were continuing to be hardened and continue to reject the message, it would ultimately justify God's future judgment on them. And so Jesus tells them to do this to show the seriousness of those that chose not to repent. How serious is it when we choose to reject Jesus, when we choose not to repent? And he's ultimately saying that the Jews who choose not to repent are outside of the family, just as they considered before the Gentiles to be. And we all know that that those of us that are not Jews are Gentiles, so therefore we all have been given an opportunity as Gentiles to be a part of the kingdom of God. So we see our mission produces faith in God's provision. It produces faith in other believers. It produces faith in non-believers or unbelievers. But our mission also produces fruit. The last couple of verses we see that it produces fruit. God will always enable us to do what he commands. Aren't you glad about that? That whenever God tells us to do something, whether it's something generally that he tells all of us to do as believers, or whether it's something over here specific that God wants us to do as an individual as part of his kingdom, 
God always gives us what we need to fulfill what he's called us to do. He always gives us what we need to fulfill his mission. What an incredible promise that we should be able to take with us in everything that we do. We see the first fruit that uh, is that the people are called to repent. You know, this is the same message that John the Baptist preached, that the disciples were being sent out to preach. They were preaching the message of repentance and that the kingdom of God is at hand. That the kingdom of God is arriving. We know from other passages in Scripture, the disciples didn't get it completely. They didn't understand completely who Jesus was or what he was going to come and do. That he was ultimately going to die on the cross and raise from the dead. We know that they didn't get it from Scripture so many times. And so they weren't, weren't in a position to understand and preach the full gospel at this point because Jesus hadn't yet died on the cross and rose from the dead. But they were preaching a message of repentance and that the kingdom of God is near. And God's power came with them and to show that the kingdom of God was near by the power that he gave them to cast out demons and to heal the sick. And we see, see more fruit. So we see the fruit of calling people to repentance, but we see the other fruit of casting out demons and healing the sick in verses 12 and 13. And so as we, look at, as, we, as we look at this passage and we see the great example of taking advantage of our opportunity on mission, what we see are some very important mission principles. These are principles that we can embrace for all of our future missions as well. The first is this, that we must be authorized and empowered by Jesus. As I said earlier, we can't go out in our own power. We can't go out and think that we can do it on our own. And that's the beauty of the gospel, that we as sinners don't deserve to even be considered as part of God's family. We don't deserve to even have a chance to serve God. But yet, he gives us not only an opportunity to serve him, but he gives us the ability to go in his power and his authority to do whatever it is that he calls us to do to enable us to do what he wants us to do. So we see that. We also see that we are sent to reach more people than he alone could reach. Obviously, Jesus is in heaven today at the right hand of the Father, and he can reach anybody in any way that he wants to at this point. But when he was on earth, he was limiting himself because he was in a physical body. And so whenever he sent out the disciples, it was to reach more people than he physically could reach himself at that time. And today he wants to use us to reach more people for his kingdom. He could do it on his own. He has the power to do it on his own. He has the power to do it by himself if he wanted to. But he gives us a great opportunity to be a part of his kingdom, to be a part of his work. And then the last thing that we see is that we are sent to prepare for later missions. Whether it's the mission of going to work every day and telling other people about Jesus or sharing with the people here at home, or whether it's the mission of going across the world on a mission trip, or going to serve in another country as a missionary. Whatever it is, God is using every experience to reach people at that time and that place through you and the power that he has put on your life to serve him. But he also is preparing us for greater things. Think about the disciples. They started out with this short-term mission trip. And after Jesus ascended into heaven, look at how he used them to spread the gospel all over the world. The disciples, along with Paul and other apostles, the only reason we're sitting here today and we know about Jesus Christ is because of these men that were willing to take the gospel to the world. And when we think about that, how sad would it have been if the disciples would have said, you know what, Jesus, I just, 
I can't do this little short-term mission trip thing you asked me to do because I'm just scared. You know, they tried to throw us off a cliff a year ago, and I'm just afraid if we go somewhere else, they're going to try to kill us. Can you imagine what they would have missed out on? Can you imagine the opportunities that they would have missed out on, the great opportunities they would have missed out on? If they have not chosen to be obedient in the small things, in the small steps that would lead to greater opportunities, that would lead to greater things as he was preparing them to do even greater things for his kingdom. Same as for us today. If we fail to take the baby steps, if we fail to take the first step, if we fail to be willing to do what God calls us to do in the first part, then what could we be missing out on as our life unfolds and when God has plans for us to serve him in even greater ways. Have you ever thought about that? Back to the Super Bowl. Tonight, there's a great game that's going to be played. There's a great opportunity. One team will have a great opportunity to become world champions. The other team will have a great opportunity to fail and probably regret it for the rest of their life. And when you think about that game... The team that plans the best, prepares the best, and executes the plan the best will ultimately be world champions and win the game. Well, the same thing is true for us today and that we all are faced with a great opportunity. And this is not a game what we're faced with. The Super Bowl is a game. People all over the world tune in. The culture gets so excited about it. I can't lie, I'm excited about it too. But Everybody, you know, millions of people all over the world are going to watch this game. Thousands of people are going to be going to this stadium from all over the world to watch this game. But in the end, just in a few years, people aren't even going to remember who the world champions in 2019 were for the NFL. But what we're talking about this morning is eternal. What we're talking about is not a game, but it's what, it's what life is all about. It's what eternity is all about is, are we going to follow Jesus? Do we have a godly focus and we're willing to follow him? Or do we have a worldly focus? Where is your focus in life today? When you're faced with this great opportunity, some of you are here today and you might say, you know what, I've never prayed to receive Jesus Christ and ask him to come into my life, be my Lord and Savior. And I've never asked him to, I've never chosen to follow him with my life. And that's the first step. And this morning, you have a great opportunity to follow Jesus as Lord and Savior. Give your life to him. Ask him to forgive you for your, for your sins and to live your life for him for the rest of your life. That's the greatest opportunity in life that you will ever have. And I can tell you, when I did that, when I made that commitment, that was the greatest decision that I have ever made in my life. You have that opportunity this morning. But those of us that already know Jesus Christ, we have opportunities every single day Great opportunities to follow Jesus, to ultimately glorify him with our lives and fulfill our purpose by fulfilling our mission. Every day we have opportunities. Are you missing the opportunities because you're so focused on the things of the world and what the world says is important or what the world says we need to focus on, just as the people of Nazareth did? Or are you willing to see past all of that and to see what God has for your life and begin to take advantage of every great opportunity he gives you every day to follow him, to serve him, to live for him, to go on mission for him, and to do what he's called you to do. Are you taking advantage of your great opportunity? Do you see Jesus? Are you missing him this morning? Knowing and following Jesus is the greatest eternal victory that we could ever have. 
Much greater than any game that could ever be played. Are you willing to follow him? Are you willing to take advantage of the great opportunity he's given you? How will you respond this morning? Let's pray together. Dear God, we thank you so much for today, Lord. And Lord, we thank you that um, you've given us examples in Scripture of what serving you looks like, God. You've given us examples in Scripture of what failing to serve you looks like, Lord. And I pray that each of us this morning would see the opportunity that's in front of us, God. And we would see the opportunity that's in front of us, Lord, that we would realize what our purpose is in life, that it's to glorify you with our life. God, and that because of realizing our purpose, that we would want to fulfill the mission that you called us to, to accomplish that purpose. And as we accomplish that mission, Lord, ultimately we will bring you glory with our lives. Lord, that's what it's about. That's why we're here. That's why we're breathing. That's why we've been created is to glorify you. And God, I pray all across this room that your Holy Spirit would move. God, that your Holy Spirit would fall and that no one in this room this morning would miss Jesus because their focus is off, because their focus is wrong. God, but that we would see you in all of your glory. God, that we would see you for who you are and that we would follow you with all that we have. That anyone here today that doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, God, that they would come to know you this morning that they would go to the back or the front where there's counselors available and pray to receive Christ as their Lord and Savior. They would take advantage of their great opportunity for salvation this morning. But God, also pray for the believers that we would take advantage of every opportunity you give us to follow you with our lives and that we can stand before you someday victorious, Lord, because of who you were in us and follow you for the rest of your lives, Lord, so rest of our lives. So whatever, Lord, you're calling us to do this morning that we wouldn't just hear, but that we would be obedient and we would act on what you've called us to do this morning. We just ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.